you know, I think if Rolling Stone had stayed in San Francisco, then something might have been possible. They they would have been hard pressed to ignore everything forever. Hello and welcome to episode one of the Who Cares Anyway podcast, a series of interviews with musicians, writers, artists, and other creative figures on topics relevant to the book Who Cares Anyway, Post-Punk San Francisco and the End of the Analog Age, coming in March 2023 on Head Press Books. That's headpress.com and whocaresanyway.online. I am Will York, the author of said book, and my guest on this first episode is Joe Carducci. In his lengthy career in and around music, Mr. Carducci has worn many hats from record dealer and distributor and producer to writer, both of screenplays and nonfiction, including Rock and the Pop Narcotic and Enter Naomi, SST LA and All That, a book that winds through a lot of the same territory that this interview does. Now, both Inter Naomi and Rockin' the Pop Narcotic, along with several other books by Mr. Carducci, can be purchased online through Night Heron Books and Coffee House. I'll put the address in the show notes, but it's nightheron, H-E-R-O-N dot square dot site, S-I-T-E. Now, this interview is on the longer side in terms of what I'll be presenting. It's almost two hours, but there was so much interesting history and so many interesting, many digressions that I found it difficult to cut more than I already cut. We talked for, oh, a little more than three hours, so there were some already painful cuts. But again, this one is a little bit long. Hope you enjoy it. New episodes should be coming on a more or less weekly basis for the next couple of months. This podcast is not going to go on forever. Uh, The idea is roughly a dozen episodes, but stay tuned and we'll see how it evolves. I think most listeners would probably know you best through uh, SST and Rock and the Pop Narcotic. But uh, before moving to Southern California, you spent some time in San Francisco and then before that, uh, Portland. And then I'm not actually sure where you were before Portland, but uh, can you take us through that era, late 70s, early 80s? Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, I tried, uh, well, I mean, I was expected to go to college, so I tried it. (laughs) And I went to University of Denver for a year and a half. Then moved back to Chicago, earned some money, and then moved to Hollywood. So I was actually in um, Hollywood from fall 76 to till fall 77. And I didn't, I was, you know, I was not in Hollywood for music, <clears throat> although I did buy the first issue of Slash magazine and, you know, heard the Ramones and the Sex Pistols. I was actually, the only gigs I went to were uh, <clears throat> Tangerine Dream, you know, because you, you, know, you couldn't see Tangerine Dream a few years earlier when you were, you know, really into their records. Um, 
you know, I was disappointed in their shows, but I certainly wanted to see them. Uh, I moved up to Portland, you know, in uh, fall 77. And that's really where I got into the record business per se. Okay. And was Renaissance Records, I couldn't quite figure out, did that exist before you moved up there or did you start that? No, that was, uh, <clears throat> that was, um, um, three guys who had worked at uh, Music Millennium in the mid seventies and they left to form, you know, they basically wanted to get rid of all the boring records and just carry imports. And, um, and so Renaissance records was their idea of, you know, uh, just having the, you know, the, the cool stuff from Europe and, uh, you know, some classical, but basically it was German psychedelia and, um, um, I guess you would say British imports and Japanese pressings, you know, a little bit of audiophile, you know, people would pay extra to have a German mastering, a German pressing, et cetera, like that. And they were doing that and it was failing. So they were, they were, but one of their partners had gone to London, um, probably for his own purposes, but, you know, on the lookout as part of this record story, he wandered into rough trade, you know, when they were new and this is probably in 77 and, um, uh, and they were basically a reggae shop. They weren't, they hadn't been, uh, turned into, a an independent label, uh, Nexus yet. But, um, the last of the three partners cultivated that connection because he was very into reggae. So he went over there himself. And at that point they were getting into um, distribution of stuff and uh, releasing their first records. And so uh, that guy, Peter, uh, you know, got interested in, in in whether you could do that over here <laughs> and uh you you couldn't do it the same way um but uh, you know london and london is the center of of england and great britain and you know and they had stuff from manchester and ireland and you know all this stuff because everybody read the enemy and sounds and the melody maker and over here, nothing was centralized at all. And Portland was, you know, the last, the last place you'd expect, um, you know, rough trade to settle on. You know, these guys are our representatives in America. They had been shipping orders to, you know, the better stores like Drome was in Cleveland and, and Bleaker Bob's in New York and, um, Aquarius in San Francisco. Um, but, you know, people didn't pay on time. And uh, so they decided they couldn't afford to do that. Um, they were so busy in England. So they um, they liked Peter and they bonded over reggae and uh, marijuana and whatever else they were into. I was more interested in, you know, the actual punk rock music, I think, than uh, any of them. Um, you know, they were interested in a lot of different stuff, but they tended to avoid the stuff that was really going to 
make things happen, which was, you know, basically, you know, punk rock, rock based, you know, hard rock based punk rock, which, you know, basically became hardcore and, you know, everything that came out of SST finally. Um, but yeah, I would say, you know, by <clears throat> spring of 78, um, I was working for records at Renaissance and it was down to Peter and I, and we were cultivating rough trade and our mail order sales and trying to, um, interest shops around the country. So it was, it was a record store and kind of a distributor at the same time. Well, it became a distributor mail order at the expense of a record store because we really didn't have much walk-in sales. We had some, but it was failing on that level. So we eventually gave up the, uh, the shop and, um, and had an office space that was, um, you know, off the street level downtown. And we would only be open uh, Saturday afternoons for um for walking uh you know shoppers and that that was probably for the last six months of 1979 we were doing it that way because our day-to-day -day work was all taking orders around the country shipping out the records to those shops and filling the mail order you know orders that came in and we would buy a few things for the mail order on major labels, <clears throat> you know, most of the punk rock in England at first came out on major labels. So Rough Trade didn't really distribute um, the Buzzcocks on UA or the Cure on uh, wherever they were, um, you know, Clash 45, stuff like that. But we, we might order five or tens of those kind of things just for the mail order because, you know, people around the country couldn't find those records, especially the seven inch records. They just record stores weren't, there was maybe one shop in every city that bothered to carry that stuff. So, you know, the business just went that way. We, we were involved locally. We did, we brought the dead Kennedys up, uh, as just, we were dealing with their first single. So they asked us for a gig and we were able to set up a gig, um, actually an all ages show and a, and a 21 show at a, at a, a theater bar. And, um, and that did well. And then we brought Perubu into town and that didn't do well, but they were going to be on rough trade. So Peter wanted to see them and, uh, he was, he was, you know, they wouldn't have played Portland otherwise. So, um, we put on their show um, the local scene, you know, was getting going and they didn't trust us. Maybe I would say they didn't trust Peter, but I, I never, I, I was, I was kind of a hippie looking guy too. And so, but they, they didn't want to do business. They wanted art artists to control the art. So the alternative arts association was their you know, they had 
different venues and they put on shows and, you know, this is the wipers and uh, King B and the Neil boys. And even though the Neil boys practiced at the record store, Renaissance records and Jennifer worked at, at Renaissance for a while. And um, she was the original guitar player and she did some writing and stuff. And uh, I had a radio show on Kabu. And Jennifer took over my radio show when I left, um, you know, when we moved um, Renaissance down to Berkeley so that in January 80, we opened up um, as systematic and uh, we didn't do retail, you know, in over the counter retail. We just had a warehouse and we um, did the mail order and, um, you know, and really um, got going at that point. Uh, you know, we were a little bit, it, it was the wrong place to move to, but it was, you know, in a way it was more central than uh, Portland was. Was there any connection uh, formally or otherwise with Subterranean uh, at that point? Well, we, we, we were the probably the only distributor interested in a label like Subterranean as a, they had just started basically. And, um, and Steve Tupper would, you know, come by with the records as we needed them. He, he had been part of New Youth, you know, the Club right. for the Deaf, um, which yes. was kind of a political group of people who, you know, they resisted Dirksen and, you know, the businesses that were going. And, but, they, you know, they were set up good. They had a recording studio and um and the label and they just kept doing stuff and uh and so i think eventually he had distribution through um rough trade and dutch east maybe and um and on flipper he probably could sell to other other uh you know important and uh green world and gem and you know other people but uh at the beginning, I don't think anyone was interested in subterranean, but we we could, you know, we we listened to records. I mean, it's hard to believe, but nobody really listened to the stuff. You know, they got they got the buzz, and so they listened to Joy Division, and they got the buzz, so they listened to Birthday Party. You know, but they really didn't listen to stuff that had no buzz. You know, no press in England. You know, there's hardly any press in America, but Slash or Flipside could generate some interest. But in general, um, in general, um, Systematic had myself and later Joe Pope, and uh, Joe was in the band Angst, and um, he's like me. You know, he wanted he didn't want to sell something if it wasn't any good and he didn't want to sell it or try to sell it if he hadn't heard it. So, you know, we, we knew what we were saying. We could tell a, a different, a, you know, different record accounts. Well, you, de you definitely want this one. You want a few of these, you want a lot of them. You know, we had an um, informed opinion, whereas gem and green world and important, um, I think Dutch East was pretty good. It, it's just the owner of, Dutch East was a problem for uh, Gerard Cosley, probably um, not paying, you know, 
not paying to keep things in stock and then starting a label and not knowing, not really, you know, nobody was capitalized. Um, and, um, nobody really knew what they were doing and there was no media, there was no media to, to really do anything. So in the end, I mean, I, I, the, one of the things that's sent me to SST was that black flag was touring and, you know, if you were going to hang around the record business, you know, that was that was the only thing that was going to ever change anything is if you could tour. Right, right. And um, speaking of new youth and renaissance, there were, um, you know, a few people who went back and forth a little bit between San Francisco and Portland. And uh, a couple of those uh, you mentioned uh, in a, a paragraph that caught my eye about uh, Diane and then Bruce, uh, Bruce uh, from Flipper uh, and uh, Diane being uh, also known as Diane and uh, you know Bruce's girlfriend. But what do you remember about about them? Well, she she uh, <clears throat> I think uh, Peter knew Diane before I did, so she'd been in Portland and probably you know she she might have bought a few early records, um, and she was definitely you know a, a serious person. Um, very interesting, you know, uh, girl and, and she was little, uh, but very serious. And, uh, she had a brother who was interested in music and, uh, but yeah, there, there wasn't much to do in Portland. So she w went down to, uh, San Francisco and, uh, Roz Rezebeck, I think was from Portland. Right. He went down there and, um, there was another um, another woman. I I only she didn't come back, so I don't recall. She was a drummer for the Products. There was a band called the Products for a while, and she was you know this was a third um, person who moved down to San Francisco. And um, I think Ava Lake was an artist. She moved down there. She was a buyer at Aquarius for a while. So. Yeah, it seemed like you could you could get up to Seattle easier, but there was less going on up there. Um, although there were bands, you know, we saw the Mentors and the Lude from up there, and DOA came down from Vancouver, and um, I went up there because a vehicle was going up there to see when the Wipers first played outside of Portland. It was in Seattle, so. Uh, some people went up there for the night and, um, that's when I first saw DOA was up in Seattle, I believe. And, um, you know, and the wipers were great. I mean, right off the bat, I mean, they'd already been a band, I think. So they had maybe, um, given up and then restarted when, you know, the first kind of signs of a scene. Uh, I, I first met them at the television gig they television played the earth tavern and uh, for their second album adventure so um that might have been um late 78 or early 79 and um and greg sage was just sitting at a table with probably mark sten and tom robinson and you know some of the people from up there who were involved in a lot of uh, gig productions and in different bands and stuff 
and then speaking of Ross, so he, you mentioned in the Sleepers, uh, Painless Nights reissue, uh, the, the liner notes to that, that he was the one who kind of uh, encouraged you to listen to the Sleepers uh, record, or I'm not sure encouraged it. You mentioned it was the only thing he ever bought. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like I said, kids in the scene didn't really buy records. I mean, you know, it's like you kind of dropped out of, uh, watching television and uh, watching sports if you followed sports a few years earlier. And, you know, record collection didn't mean much. I mean, people wanted to probably have Raw Power and the first Ramones album and the Sex Pistols album, but, you know, nobody was really um, paying a lot of attention to, um, you know, uh, collecting um, because, you know, you just didn't have the money to, to do that. But, um, he, he really was amazed to see it on the wall, the, the sleeve, and I'd already heard it, but, um, you know, first listen is never enough. And, um, often stuff that is, uh, deeper, you know, and it's, in its quality is it takes a, a, you know, a long time to, in a sense, you you have to master it as a listener, and um, and so when he when I saw him react to it, then um, I um, put it on again, and then uh, he came back the next day and was telling somebody about the record, and I overheard him say that he he and his girlfriend had listened to it all day long, <laughs> and, uh, and it is that kind of record, but you you know you don't get that on on your first exposure to it. Um, so anyway, that, um, yeah, it, it is, it is strange how few records we sold, you know, there were some people who had jobs and they were straight, straighter people and they bought records and they might go to see the bands, you know, cause the wipers and the Neil boys really did kind of, uh, you know, draw significant attention to the to their gigs you know by the time you're talking 1979 especially and uh and so yeah you you know but you know it it is it's 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 hard to it's hard to know um because even when you uh went down to aquarius in san francisco or vinyl fetish in la You'd, you'd, you know, in a way, people hung out at record stores, but they didn't actually buy a lot of stuff. You know, it's, it's it was all expensive, and you know, you, you'd stay in the store and you'd listen to it. And uh, you know, in in Renaissance, I mean, I, I I had nothing else to do but talk to Bruce Loose, you know, <laughs> and so so I would just play anything he wanted to hear and tell him what I thought was you know, the good stuff. And, uh, he was an interesting guy and he, he, he kind of put the, the locals on edge because, you know, he, he, he knew he was already in flipper, even though they weren't, they weren't necessarily, I don't know if they'd played yet, even in San Francisco. You know, he, he was up in Portland during the, the stretch where Ricky was singing with them. And so it was kind of like a musical chairs scenario where uh, Bruce had rehearsed with them for a month or so, gone up to Portland, 
Ricky kind of slid into that role. It took me a while to sort that out because memories are, are quite hazy and there's not a lot of documentation, but you know, there's enough that you can kind of piece it together. But yeah, it was, it was that, that year of 79 when, when everything was kind of uh, sorting itself out as far as uh, you know, who would end up where uh, going forward. Yeah, they played uh, very small bars when I then got down there in um, January 80 in Berkeley. <clears throat> we were first in Pinole, actually. Then we found our space and moved in, and <clears throat> and I got a, an apartment in Berkeley. So I, I first saw Flipper, I think, at the Dew Drop In on San Pablo in, in Berkeley. And then I decided to buy a cassette recorder because um you know i liked the show but i couldn't remember anything about about what they played so i started taping their shows and uh basically taping anything that i went to but uh, it was basically to tape flipper that i bought the the machine and uh i saw him at uh the sound of music and um and then you know in a year they were playing the 10th street hall or people's temple or you know whatever those uh, big halls were that they they after the first single came out um and the album then they were a headliner you know or a, or a very strong support for dead kennedys or black flag or a throbbing gristle or you know stuff like that public image i think yeah When the, the new Sleepers lineup came out with um, the second guitarist and the new drummer and bass player, you mentioned seeing them with uh, Cabaret Voltaire and the Young Marble Giants. And uh, I think that was a that was a 10th Street Hall. Yeah. Yeah. Show. Yeah. yeah what what was, do you remember uh, about that? Yeah. Well, that that was not like the People's Temple uh whatever you know there were two or three halls next to each other those were deep long halls with the stage at the far end from the front door 10th street seemed like a wide um you know left to right kind of a hall where you know the stage was on uh, the long side facing across a shorter distance and, um, you know, and they just commanded the stage. I mean, they really were, um, we, we, um, the rough trade was, was using a couple guys as Lee advance men in, um, San Francisco Vale from search and destroy and, um, Craig, I forget his last name, but he was more of a straight guy who, you know, we were we were forwarding the promos to the Americans on their on the rough trade list and Craig and Vale would get multiple copies and they would pass them around to uh, you know, in Vale's case press people and in Craig's case radio people in San Francisco. And um Vale was involved in adolescent records which did the sleepers album and some other stuff 
Yeah. And, um, and, and Vale had a partner who probably really did the record business stuff of coming, you know, delivering the records to systematic for distribution and stuff. And I didn't, I didn't have a, a, a you know, um, a clear sense of the sleepers, you know, I, I knew I liked the EP, but I wasn't privy to the record and the band and, you know, and um, what had gone into making that record when it came out, I was a little, uh, I mean, I liked it, but uh, I didn't, um, I didn't, I suspected that the production was, influenced by the British, you know, the British, uh, factory stuff. And, um, and that really hit you when you saw what they did live, because that was way more powerful than, um, you know, a joy division show could ever be because it just connected rock and roll dots, you know, dotted the I's across the T's in a way Americans do, because Americans practice and they jam and, you know, they do, they do music differently. The British, you know, got conceptual after the, probably after the blues rock, you know, um, in the sixties, um, they just didn't uh, play, they didn't practice. So in the end, they're all playing keyboards and electronic stuff. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's hip hop in its own way it's a studio music so anyway that's what when you saw the sleepers that's what impressed you is you know wow they this is a big wide stage it's a big wide hall and you know and their their uh sound is huge i mean should have should have um you know but like i said i didn't know much about Ricky. So I didn't know, wow, you know, it was amazing to see him do a whole set. You know, I didn't know how rare that was, you know, that he was going to be able to function. And, and I didn't know if the band, you know, reading, uh, Michael Belfer's book is just, you know, it just, it gives you all of that information. Um, what they all went through to try to, you know, to try to have it together. Right, right. Okay, yeah, that that makes sense. And you know, it's it's too bad. I mean, there's one there's one uh, recording, um, the Savoy uh, show from early 1981, and uh, that was kind of like their the closing of the Savoy Tivoli. Uh, somebody has made that one available yeah. online, and um, but yeah, I imagine you were going to the Savoy probably a lot. That was probably pretty close to the Rough Trade location i didn't see yeah i think i i think i was there to see monitor but i you know i could be wrong i don't i don't have a tape so but i believe i went there um but sometimes you know you just uh first time you saw a band you didn't you know um and i did see bands before i uh, that I don't have tapes of. So, you know, the tapes right. help your memory in a way that, uh, you know, you, you can't always tell, but, you know, like uh, early, early bands I saw in San Francisco, I remember seeing uh, X and uh, the Alley Cats at probably um, 
those halls over over where People's Temple was. Uh, what was the other one called? It was the Bill Graham. Um, yeah, the 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 film the old Fillmore was down there, and I think they might have brought it back in the early eighties. You would or the Elite yeah. Club? I think yeah. it was called the Elite Club. Yeah, that that's maybe? it. Yeah, that's yeah. it. That's on a few of my tapes of Flipper and Fang, and you know, Minimal Man played there. I think, and yeah, I did. I did go to the Elite Club club regularly and um um they were i think they were either calling it the temple beautiful or the 1839 geary but yeah they're all they're all in that stretch yeah. and and um the the actual people's temple was uh, next door i believe to the place that they called the temple yeah. beautiful yeah yeah i mean you know it's that's the thing it's like uh san francisco was is maybe a great place if you if you can find a place in it you know uh it's it's a nice scaled city but you know there were no pressing plants um we uh <clears throat> what did we do we cut the uh we mastered the birthday party and the SPK album at Fantasy Records and um you know you're going into fantasies you know big a big uh record label distributor and right. straight straight as an arrow and you go to george horn to cut lacquers because you know at least you can control that you don't have to send them tape out somewhere else and but you know after you have to send your lacquers to la or somewhere to press and uh and, um, but yeah, you know, you'd see, uh, Neil Sean walk down the hallway and <laughs> you're bringing in an SPK album, you know, and there's no, <laughs> there's no way to communicate anything really. And, you know, um, eventually, I mean, I didn't know that rough trade should have moved to LA. Their idea was we don't want to live in LA. Mayo Thompson, was talking up Houston or San Francisco. That was what they wanted to do. But, um, you know, if, if, you know, I think if Rolling Stone had stayed in San Francisco, then something might've been possible. They, they would have been hard pressed to ignore everything forever. But um, once they left, there's really no way to communicate out of San Francisco you know, to, um, to, uh, you know, I mean, it wasn't, my case was to get good music on the radio again, like I remembered it as a kid. Um, that wasn't everyone's motivation. You know, most people were happy to be underground, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and to just be part of the scene that is what they wanted to do, which is, I want to be hipper than, these uh, schmucks I went to high school with. And that, that's all they cared about. They didn't care about, well, the band can't afford to do, you know, to to buy strings for the guitar or something. You know, that, that wasn't part of their thinking. And that's why, you know, that they had a limited use for buying records and, you know, and and um, it took quite a, quite a while for, it seemed like, it was high school kids who really needed to buy records when it came down to it. 
you know, they wanted to buy the Black Flag record, then they wanted to buy the Minor Threat and the Adolescents and the Circle Jerks, and, you know, they bought the record. So, you know, suddenly you're selling hundreds of records where, you know, you really only sold hundreds of records when it was Joy Division or or uh, Young Marble Giants or Stiff Little Fingers, maybe, as far as rough trade type stuff went. You know, mostly you just sold 50 or 100, and um, we tried to keep things in print. But other distributors, I mean, keep things available in stock for reorders, and we would remind people of the best stuff that we, you know, we thought they should sell more because it's better music. But most distributors just, it was slash and burn for them. If they got rid of their stock, they were happy and they didn't reorder. Right, right. And, you know, I think for a lot of us, we have to remember San Francisco in the early 80s was not anywhere uh, near the kind of prominent uh, place that it is now with, you know, like Twitter being headquartered there. I mean, it's now it's like a it's a power center, but it really wasn't then, uh, let alone a a media uh, kind of center. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because in, in I guess it's first issue of Search and Destroy, the sleepers are talking about, you know, um, the computer industry in just in the garages of Palo Alto. And so they're aware of that because I don't know whose parents were, you know, in academia or something, but um, they were kind of aware of things were all going to be changed, but, you know, no one could, no one could imagine almost, I mean, you can, you can't imagine the death of vinyl or the rebirth of vinyl. And, (laughs) you know, it's, it's just too um, strange. Um, uh, And I was always interested in radio. You know, if, if black flag hadn't uh, taken me up on my offer uh, to run their office for them, um, I was, you know, I had written letters to Jem and and to Perez uh, Saraband label, maybe Green World even, trying to see if there was a job I could just slide into and get back to L.A., you know, so that I could uh, basically con- continue screenwriting and try to uh, try to um, not give up on that. Otherwise, I was probably going to move back to Chicago and just see what was going on there. Um, but um, at SST, then, you know, it was it was a it was a deeper involvement because you know there's six or twelve or twenty bands, and you're you're involved every step of the way from you know practice gigs to records and. Uh, and um, whereas at Systematic and Renaissance, I was just dealing with the end product, which is how many records can we sell of this? You really, even though I know that music for those four years at Systematic and Renaissance, I know what came out really well, and I have most of it, but uh, I don't have everything, but you know, if if you, because systematic was so underground, you, you know, you really, we were getting known, but you really, every band and every town that put a record together, you know, they'd ask their record store 
you know, where do can you, where do we take our record? Where do we send it? You know, it wasn't clear to people in those days. Oh, you send it to you send it to Systematic, and you send it to Green World, and you send it to uh, Dutch East. I mean, all that stuff was, you know, just starting, and so you're liable to be ignored, as you know, as paid attention to because. I don't know. In a lot of ways, I've always thought people were handicapping um, cool instead of listening to music. And um, and that's somewhat inevitable, but um, you really have to work to to listen uh, op- you know, with open ears to new stuff that's coming out. Otherwise, you're just like these people who were, you know, they would just flip from you know, goth to industrial to, you know, the next cool. And, and, um, you, you know, you wondered what they did with their old records, you know, (laughs) eventually just, just molting their, uh, collection over and over again, I guess. Right, right, and you know, so w- when you moved to, El- to to Southern California, that I uh, you were alluding to that just now that there was a specific reason, but I, I'm also kind of wondering because going back through the the San Francisco chapter in uh, Simon Reynolds' uh, "Rip It Up and Start Again," which uh, you know I found very very helpful when I was getting started, and I, I love that book, but he definitely focuses more on the theatrical electronic side of things uh he uses the word cabaret and 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 um you know he does of course interview you and there is stuff about like flipper and chrome and stuff but different emphasis than certainly like what you would later go on to write about in terms of like an actual rock uh aesthetic but was that something uh when you were in san francisco were you kind of were you seeing a more prevalence of of kind of bands that you were less interested in? And was that something else that was kind of wanting you to kind of move on and find another place that felt more uh, like home <laughs> musically? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think I always was interested in a lot of different stuff, but I never stopped liking hard rock, you know, in, in the sense that maybe other people turn the page on black Sabbath or, you know, whatever they were into, even, even the stooges, you know, people, you know, Vale. I said, uh, I asked Vale one time if he was going to see the Ramones, they were playing on campus at UC, uh, at UC Berkeley. And he said, no, it's the same old movie. <laughs> you know. And I, so I, I, you know, to me, I love movies. Music is not a movie. I mean, it's it's. I don't care how how samey you are. It's you know the kinetic. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Audio kinetic, audio kinesis of a live band. But you know, I don't think. I don't think Simon Reynolds listens to music that way either. You know, I mean. Right. He, he, I mean, I, I saw Tuxedo Moon. I thought Tuxedo Moon and uh, Chrome are in a way the strangest, they have the strangest sense of acoustics of, of anyone who did a lot of records, you know? And, um, 
you know, the, obviously Chrome is a little more rock uh, occasionally. I mean, I like them when they're really rocking instead of, you know, spacing out and stuff. But um, I like some of Tuxedo Moon. I went and saw uh, Aldo Ray was a one-off, I think. I saw one show of theirs in a sit-down theater. You, you could kind of tell that the Sophistos... Um, wanted uh, they thought there would be more money you know if you could get away from these grubby teenagers you know and um and i didn't know enough about san francisco to really understand that yeah these kids were all from the suburbs and they were embarrassing you know to anyone who thought well geez i'd rather be in paris or something you know or um <laughs> Uh, it's just not, that's not how I, uh, think of, uh, uh, certainly of music, but, um, you know, I mean, I, I, you, you respected uh, people like Dirksen when you, you know, once I was down in LA, I would often go up with Black Flag if they were just going to play San Francisco or just go up the coast a little bit and come back to LA, I could, you know, take those four or five days and, and go with them. And so then, you know, I don't know if it was probably, they were playing the on Broadway. And, um, and so after black flag finishes, it's late and the loadout is complicated. I think they went down that back stairwell, which was really steep. And, um, you know, with these heavy amplifiers and everything. And so, you know, it's about three in the morning and you're, you're in the van in front of the Mabuhai, uh, waiting for the last bit of space out to, you know, to end and everyone to get in the van and drive back to LA. And, and Dirk is, you know, pushing a broom in, in front of the Mabuhe at three in the morning. And uh, so the band gets to say goodbye to him. And, you know, you, you know, you respected uh, Greg and Chuck as adults who kind of didn't have this commerce, commercial phobia, the way I was talking about Portland or, you know, different, different, art scenes where, you know, artists didn't want to deal with businessmen. And, um, you know, there's obvious, obvious reasons. There, was no, there wasn't enough money around, so everyone thought they were being ripped off. Well, you know, everyone except maybe Greg and Chuck, I mean, they were, <clears throat> they felt like, you know, they wanted the promoter to be happy so they could come back. And, uh, and, you know, not have another fight on their hands over, you know, it just wasn't going to work that way. So if you, you know, if you got shafted a little bit the first time, you would make yourself important to the promoter and they would treat you better as time went on. And, you know, that kind of cold reasoning and self-interest uh, was a smarter way to approach things back then when the important thing was to get to where you could tour and, um, and get to where you could uh, support your own, uh, art. Um, because everyone else was waiting for a dream and, and 
that just didn't happen. And, um, and, um, I mean, when it, when it did happen, you could, you know, you could say, well, they, you know, they didn't let it happen until the music was no longer good. <laughs> you know, you, you, you get to a point where the music form is, is worn down to even Nirvana, you know, who were very good players, but, you know, he, Cobain was not improving as a guitar player. That just wasn't what he was going to do. And um, um, so, you know, there was no way that band was going to last very long. Um, and you look at Dave Grohl, he's a great drummer, but you can't, you know, you can't have a career from the drum kit. So he becomes, you know, a mediocre guitarist and singer because and and somehow the career is there for him to step in and you know the 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 when the music was more vital you couldn't have success the industry yeah. industry you know reacts in some ways and so when you really have rock and roll going on you're at a disadvantage in the recording studio uh in a live concert hall and um, in a record store, uh, because you know the the I don't know you know people still argue about spots productions of SST. Well, you know, that, that that you know he was recording jazz bands, so he's he's showing you and delivering to the band how they sound, and it's right. idealized because it's balanced. And, you know, he's found an equalization for the different instruments so they're not all stepping on each other, if he can. I mean, the problem for Black Flag is damaged is songs written for one guitar played with two guitars. And, you know, Slip It In and My War are written for two guitars and they're played by one guitar. You know, it's the, the, the fate, the fates of, uh, of a rock band are doomed or cursed let's say cursed because you know you manage to do it but it's not ideal you, you just but what's ideal the red hot chili peppers you know, <laughs> they're, they're the, from the no. industry from radio that's ideal Flipper and the Toiling Midgets, both of them, you know, their their debut LPs came out in 1982, and then it was a real struggle to get to the second record. And Flipper had gone fishing, which took a long time to come out. And Toiling Midgets, they had kind of already broken up with Deadbeats. That must have been a tough one to uh, to put out because they, yeah, they did not exist, and they were instrumental. And to the extent that people knew them from. Uh, from anything to do with Ricky Williams, he was he was long gone by that point. But how did you come to be involved with that one? Well, I think um, John Bouchard uh, was asked, you know, if he was interested in doing it. He was, uh, I'm not even sure who he was in touch with. I, I uh, met uh, Craig and, um, you know, later uh, Aaron, 
Um, but the record just fell into, you know, John's hands, really. I think uh, they had hoped Rough Trade might be interested in it. But, you know, that's the thing. I mean, you know, the, the, you, you couldn't, you couldn't even veil, you know, probably tried because I'm sure he believed that that was important, you know, anything Ricky was doing or Belfer or uh, Craig Gray or, you know, any of those guys, yeah. you know, he, he would have vouched for, I'm sure, but you couldn't, you know, you couldn't tell the English, you know, anything about what was important. Um, if you think about it, they're trying to sell this very English stuff, you know, <clears throat> I mean, of those bands, the fall made an impression over time, you know, they really got their sound down and, um, you know, really worked musically. It was a rock band, you know, it really, really was, you know, together, but most of the stuff was not, you know, it was on one hand, it was very English, but, uh, you know, it wasn't together. It was style. And, and so, you really, the first Toiling Midgets record was supposed to be on Rough Trade U.S. Right. And Situation 2, or whatever they call it, is really the um, the Americans uh, improvising how to get it out after they told the band, you know, we'll do it. Okay. <laughs> and they said, no, you can't do it. You can't put Rough Trade's name on it. Uh. <clears throat> you know, what, you know, why? What? You know, what are you protecting from Ricky? <laughs> you know, I mean, it doesn't make any sense, really. And, and you know, where's Mayo? Or where's Scott Peering? Or, you know, there were some Americans over in the London office. Um, but, you know, they didn't know San Francisco. They didn't know that the sleepers were important. They probably listened to the, you know, the adolescent release painless nights and thought, um, you know, they're copying joy division or, you know, right. um, they don't understand that, you know, this is really still the stooges that people are, are working from, you know, the pre Ramones template of rock and roll, which is really what negative trend and, and, um, the sleepers both were doing, you know, which was, Funhouse and raw power, basically. Um, and, but you know, that's that's that. I call it the Bowie syndrome because David Bowie has a new look and a new name and a new record, and um, um, and he's not wearing out or deepening what he's doing. He's turned a page. He's doing something new. Right. And, um, that's not a musical evolution, you know, it just, it's style and modernism, um, you know, gay pageantry, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of traditions of that and they're, they tend to be anti-rock. And so to, to an extent, if you're me, you, um, you know, that, that um, makes you underline the rock continuity. Um, and, um, you know, and all of that was there. It's just some people weren't paying any attention to it. 
you know, it's it's like um, in the middle of punk rock, um, Ray Campy puts a band together and starts touring, um, you know, with like a six-piece um, rockabilly band, and they were great. You know, they played the the uh, Earth Tavern in um, Portland, and uh, um, you know, they got a, a a push from whoever. I don't know if it was Radar Records or you know somebody in in London and, um, and they toured America. And if they played Portland, they played a lot of places. I, you know, I don't know if they left any, uh, but you know, you could, you couldn't call rockabilly exhausted if you saw them play their set and, you know, and Muddy Waters was still around. I, I saw him in Portland and, uh, and, um, big Walter and, um, you know, the blues was still accessible and if you were my age, you were trying to make up for not knowing, you know, what happened in the 50s and 60s. And these guys still alive. You, you know, you wanted to check them out when you could. And uh, but, you know, so that that's why that Bowie thing doesn't make sense. You know, it's uh, you, you, you you think, well, this is you know, this is um, I don't know what it is. Theater showbiz, you know, it's uh, it's it's not really rock and roll, you know, and, you know. In the 70s, you saw progressive rock was a dead end, you know, with Emerson, Lake and Palmer and, and all, you know, whatnot. It, it just, it just, um, you know, there were different reactions to that. <clears throat> so Robert Fripp was a kind of conceptual response. Punk rock was too, but it was also natural because they really couldn't play, you know, uh, scales or, you know, whatever, whatever, uh, time signature arrangements, you know, you, you were maybe listening for in 74 because you wanted to hear something new, but yeah, it's, and then, you know, someone like Hendrix dies and that's a dead end. So you don't see necessarily an organic, um, fulfillment of what you think of is, is, as going on, it stops. And some, sometimes it stops very fast. And, um, you know, I'll, I mean, it's great that the literature is catching up to the history because you really, you really didn't know what happened in the old days, you know, between uh, Mercury Records and the New York Dolls or, you know, it, it was kind of impenetrable. You know, they, the Rolling Stone, the publishers really used to only care about Bob Dylan and the Beatles, you know, and um, maybe Sun Records. You know, you'd get documentation released in a paperback book of, you know, recording session log books. You know, you could find that on Sun Records. You could find it on the Beatles, Bob Dylan, nothing else nothing else you know if you were if you were interested in uriah heap you were up Shit's creek you know you you weren't going to find out anything about their records at all i like one of my favorite quotes is you know in rock and the pop narcotic is uh is uh you know one of those uh new york record label guys maybe he was in la but he said uh you could take three guys out of Uriah Heep and replace him with three other guys. And it doesn't matter a whole hell of a lot. 
you know, I mean, he's he's thinking like they're supposed to be the Beatles too, you know, where you you know you ask the girls, do you like Ringo <laughs> or do you like Paul? You know, it, it it's not like that, you know, ten years later. So it's it's um but anyway, you know, the the like I said, the literature is improving. These, these books, uh, you, you know, you've been involved with and that are coming out, uh, you know, are, um, um, you know, full of uh, great stuff like the, um, you know, the Avengers book on Wilsey and um, and um, and uh, Chris, uh, yeah. what's his name? Right, right. Um, yeah. OK. <laughs> Isaac. Chris Isaac. Uh, yeah. Yeah the Goldberg book uh, that I didn't think I would read into the uh, Chris Isaac section, but it is very interesting. I mean, it, it is, um, it, I didn't know Isaac except for the hit song, but uh, I knew that, uh, you know, the Avengers, uh, that the guitarist had been in the Avengers. He actually played bass, I guess, in the Avengers. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a sad story, but, <laughs> They're all sad stories. Yeah, and I'm glad that one came problem. out because I, I um, did not um, focus on the Avengers. I, I really of the of the late '70s bands, I focused on the Sleepers and Negative Trend, but mostly for continuity. Well, I like their music, but there's also a continuity in terms of uh, the connecting yeah. into the '80s. They weren't. A, yeah, they were. I mean, I I did a um, <clears throat> a book talk at. Um, at um whatever <clears throat> whatever um <laughs> uh superior viaduct oh, okay. uh, bookstore was in in oakland okay. and um and uh penelope um referred to her her band and i didn't recognize her so i i said what was your band name and she goes the avengers and i go oh <laughs> because okay. you know they were a band you wanted to see live but they were not a band they weren't together anymore right. by the time we get down to to uh, Berkeley, it's January 80 and they're, they're gone, but their EP comes out later that year, I think the 12 inch. And we had been selling the danger house seven inch, um, really well. I mean, it, it was the one danger house record that the, the nation hardcore kids got into <clears throat> and, you know, and, uh, danger house was, I mean, um, uh, Jennifer had been a buyer at, uh, a record store called long hair in Portland. And I went in there and she had stuff in there that, you know, we, we didn't have at, uh, Renaissance. <laughs> and the most important was she had like all five of the uh, danger house 45s for sale. And, you know, they really didn't have many qu quantities cause they were just buying, you know, for their own, um, you know, for their own interest, really, and to tell people, hey, you should buy that. Um, but that was new to me, and and um, and they were obviously the, the the best label going on, and so I immediately took down the address and uh, and ordered those and added those to what we were distributing, and um, and um, you know, even even the Dill single is just a classic. And um, uh, and the and the randoms and uh, the Avengers and uh, the Alley Cats. I mean, you know that stuff is powerful. 
And it was, you know, just you couldn't do much, you know, distributing those records. And um, until you got to Jealous Again and the Adolescents and, you know, um, the Avengers 12-inch, you, you know, that at that point we start having to order by the hundreds and, um, and, and, you know, it's piss poor to order 400 adolescence records. But at the time, you know, my partner said, Hey, are you sure you're going to sell 400 adolescence records? You know, I mean, um, you knew it was going to happen. They sent us a, you know, a, a test pressing. So I knew the record was, you know, good. And, and I'd never seen the band live, but, um, you know, you just, there was suddenly an audience and that meant you were going to sell those 400 and reorder quite quickly. Um, but yeah, that was, that was, um, you know, that was, you know, radio was a problem and, um, but, you know, until you really have a person work in radio, at SST, we eventually had Ray Farrell, and and he did a lot of work in San Francisco and Berkeley, you know, um, at Rough Trade and CD and Subterranean and Rather Ripped. <clears throat> and when I finally talked him into coming down there, then, he, then at SST, he was calling up radio stations, and then we got a kind of an inside look at, you know, just how fucked up radio was. I mean, media is in a way, you know, it, it, they do, they prefer, um, they prefer pop to rock. They just prefer a clean machine made product. And so, you know, in a way, um, the only thing radical about hip hop is the vocals. Um, the way they put the music together is is really what radio wants. They want just engineered sound, <laughs> and uh, they don't want expressive playing. Right, right. And so, yeah, it's, it's just uh, it's just a conundrum that is. It was only solved for a very short period of time when. You know, when uh, Nirvana broke through and then you had the Melvins on a major label for, a, I don't know, yeah. Dan, Dinosaur Jr., you know, a couple records. It, it, the window opened a little bit the way it had been when I was in high school, you know, in the early 70s. And if you weren't my age, you didn't remember when radio was good. You know, most of these hardcore kids, you know, they were Ted Nugent fans or, you know, Kiss fans or, you know, they really didn't remember when radio was good. This uh, distinction between uh, you know, engineered sound and, and rock music is really the that distinction is really the, the core of rock and the pop narcotic, but was there a certain time when that idea crystallized in, in your mind that, that, that was, uh, because, you know, a lot of people when say punk comes along, uh, lines were drawn in terms of, uh, punk pre-punk yeah. or, you know, but, but you're, you don't make the distinction that way at all because you're, you see a continuity. I mean, I, I probably, 
Yeah, I probably did make the distinction at first because, you know, there's a period in the in the mid and late 70s where you're tired of, you know, these uh, um, um, tasty licks guys, you know, and you're tired of, uh, you know, of facility and uh, flashiness in the old um, prog rock or acid rock or, you know, so in a way, to the extent the early punk rockers were forcing the rhythm and um, playing all downstrokes and accentuating the, the harsh, um, you know, you know, you almost the, the whiteness of the sound structure, getting away from the well-oiled funk black, rhythmic approach um you know uh you know what what black players did coming out of say the church or dance bands funk bands was a kind of um a stylistic promise of you know smoothness elegance and um you know, often when I was a kid, I would wonder, why do they have eight people up on stage? Why is there 10 people on stage? <laughs> you know, they'd have a horn section and three chick singers and uh, three guitar players, and they'd be doing the tiniest little chicken plucking, you know. And um, they were trying to replicate a kind of a dream of sophisticated dance music and you know as a white teenager you're you know you're too impatient for that um but you know when i saw the bands at sst work in practice so hard on how the drumming was arranged to fit into the you know the bass um playing the melody and the, then the guitar coming in on top of it, <clears throat> you know, I, I, you kind of, you, you're kind of involved with musicians who are reconnecting to early seventies, um, smoothness and, um, facility. And so, so it's when I'm working on rock and the pop narcotic, I'm going back to, you know, West Bruce and Lang records and, you know, all this stuff and re-listening to things that I had worn out and I was no longer really interested in. And, um, and then when you, when you hear what they were doing at the top of their game, um, I think I, um, I think it's the, the song is called the doctor and it's, you know, Jack Bruce on bass playing with, Felix Papillardi and Leslie West and um I know it's Corky Lang on drums they um they're just whipping that rhythm thing around it isn't I mean it's it's blacker than white but it's it's not something you hear black musicians do uh, with that level of force because they you know they their interest is more in subtlety, but these three guys were, you know, were like, um, exploring, uh, you know, the kind of caveman rock 
and what could you do with caveman rock? And so there's stuff on that record that is just uh, light years beyond, uh, you know, the rhythm section of anybody, uh, you know, in, in punk rock, except um, the Minutemen, maybe, you know. Um, and uh, so you just, you know, you just recognize that and, and accept it and, and you, you revalue it in your, in your mind uh, as you just get older and have heard more records and you've seen, you know, you've seen the, the different styles kind of end because they were happy being styles instead of, you know, having the musicians in pursuit of, you know, some, something they were trying to master and, and, um, and, um, and, uh, you just, so you're just, um, you know, you're more musically involved, uh, as a band and, you know, it's difficult because you, you know, it's not every band has got the same, you know, potential with the players at hand. And, you know, I was I often talk with Bill Stevenson and, um, and, uh, just listen to, uh, you know, a, a Kira Rossler, uh, interview on the Mojack podcast and, and, you know, the band, those two players could have done something like what John Wetton and Bill Bruford did with King Crimson. And, you know, Greg didn't like King Crimson. So why did he turn them into a metronome you know, instead of, you know, letting them syncopate or letting them improvise? You know, he just uh, he 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 demanded they got they get simpler and. And, um, and this is, um, in my head and, uh, you know, the later black flag albums. And, uh, sometimes when you, you want, you listen to the live recordings, it works. Hmm. And other times it's so simple in the rhythm section that it's kind of like the acoustics aren't there somehow. And it, and it just, it goes by you without having an impact. Of course, you're not there at the concert. You're listening on a laptop. <laughs> so, you know, it's, you're going to be lucky to find the recording that survives to give you a sense of that. But, you know, that there, there are videos where you, you see that four piece and it's working as minimal as it got other than Greg's solos, you know, is they got pretty minimal. Yeah, but just the idea from what I've read about how much they would uh, practice, but even if, whether you want to call it practice, but just playing in a, in a room together is almost uh, is, yeah. <laughs> is is a, is a yeah. lost art, and and um, you know the idea that yeah, uh, that's, that's just a completely yeah. different. Genre. And that's a, yeah, yeah. It's in a way it's wrong to call it minimal because uh, it's so practiced that um you know that's my my uh, the, my best friend i met while i was in portland was dave lightborn and he was in a completely different scene you know he he did a 50s rock and roll show on cable which is how i got to do the punk rock show and um um <clears throat> but he was in a jug band he played guitar and he studied charlie Patton and uh, tommy johnson and sun house and, you know, that's what he cared about. And we both worked at the 
Cinema 21 movie theater, which is how I met him. But um, he, you know, I, I don't do drugs. I never smoked pot. And he would, he's, he would tell me that uh, pot, you know, speeds up your mind, which to you makes the music seem to slow down and allow you to place your note strike exactly on the rhythm you want it, you know, ex an expressive positioning of the note um, on this side or that side of the rhythm, you know, where you want it. And, um, you know, but if you're sober and you're listening to these stone cats on stage, often it's somnambulistic, you know, it's too subtle for, you know, you to, unless it's hard rock, you know, it, it might go past you. <laughs> and, uh, um, but anyway, he, he, um, uh, uh, you know, I often thought that the, the, my radio show really, uh, had no audience because it was just like one hour at 11 PM Sunday nights. But, uh, Jerry A from Poison Idea said he was a listener to my show. And um, I think uh, uh, somebody else mentioned taping the show and, and um, you know, listening to that hour of records. And again, you know, that, that, that I think the only records we ever sold, obviously, from the radio show was Tubeway Army. You know, before Gary Newman went solo, his band was called Tubeway Army. And I remember really liking that first record. He played a lot of guitar, unlike his later stuff, and uh, yeah, we sold a bunch of those records out of the out of the over the counter, which is pretty rare. But um, uh, yeah, I didn't I didn't pay enough attention to David Lightbourne's knowledge of twenties blues, Delta blues, and jug band music, and. Um, that's the one weakness of rock and the pop narcotic is I didn't realize, and he didn't know to tell me that the, the acoustic blues, um, you know, once it got out of new Orleans, it, it wasn't about horns and pianos anymore and the guitar and, uh, um, <clears throat> and, uh, harmonica and, um, and um washboard <laughs> became the rhythm the rhythm section and uh and uh and uh i i i got a, a more of a crash course on on uh, that aspect once once i was in wyoming and he was uh, living in, in laramie with me and playing his you know we put a band together in laramie and we did a record at uh, the descendant studio and um uh, of his, uh, of his music. I'm probably putting a record of his together for, uh, for the feeding tube label, which also did my brother's seventies band, you know, they, they had some practice tape. So we, we put together a archival release of their stuff from 75. And, you know, that, that's, I mean, as dumb as we were at, uh, systematic and SST, I, we, I, we were classically, uh, you know, suburban knuckleheads when my, my brother who was younger than me and, um, 
got really good on guitar and they were very ambitious, you know, in a Mahavishnu sort of way, playing instrumental, um, studying music theory and writing these elaborate, you know, uh, kind of hard rock uh, instrumental prog jams. And uh, so some of that's finally come out and, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, curious. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm supposed to do vocals on tapes that Mike Watt and his drummer put together when I told him my brother was playing the guitar again. So he just, he immediately, you know, writes and records eight rhythm tracks and sends the files to me to give to my brother to add guitar to. So they did it. And now I'm supposed to make my vocal debut on that. So I don't, I don't, I'm not in music anymore, but I, I'm, I'm still tied to it somehow. What is the name of this uh, outfit or does it have a name yet? <laughs> well, he, Watt started calling it Carducci brothers. Uh, okay. So uh, we got to come up with a better name than that. But um, um, his 70s band was called Midnight and named after the uh, Hendrix instrumental, uh, which is probably Hendrix's best song. It's an amazing thing off of War Heroes album. And um, But yeah, my brother's bass player and back in the 70s, he's, he's who brought in the Hawkwind records. And you thought, Jesus Christ, I mean, you know, how is... How have I never heard of this band? They've got three albums out already. And, you know, that's how it was. You just didn't read about stuff in Rolling Stone magazine. Um, <clears throat> not sure they were in circus or, you know, whatever else was around. Um, I started reading the British music weeklies at the Hollywood Public Library in 76. You know, once you figured out wow, the Sex Pistols turned into anarchy. That sounds pretty cool. And you, you start you start looking at those uh, magazines and they're still covering Tangerine Dream and, you know, all this European stuff too. So I would spend some time uh, reading uh, reading those. And I, I, think, um, I think I probably almost met, uh, you know, people like Darby Crash and those guys who, you know, were doing that too at the, at the library there. But I didn't. Uh, I didn't run across any punk rockers really, while I was in Hollywood that one year. Um, but I did listen to K Rock and I did hear the stuff. You know, the Dictators and the Ramones were on, and um, and um, and so, yeah. I mean, I I had remembered the radio from L.A. and uh, I didn't do much talking to the Rough Trade people in London. I went over there and met them all, but um, Peter talked to them mostly. And I told Peter, Hey, we should move to LA, not Berkeley. <laughs> and uh, Peter was a hippie. He didn't want to go to LA any more than they did. And um, um, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to believe we, we might've gone to Houston, but uh, <laughs> that's what they were talking like. You know? Well, a lot of people from Houston wound up moving up to the to the vats or places like that in in like 1982, but uh, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Or, or uh, other places in Texas, Sluggo. Yeah, there was a fanzine called Sluggo, and I forget who made the fanzine, but um, I met him in uh, in San Francisco after he had moved, and uh, 
he had his letterpress or, you know, whatever, one of these old fashioned, uh, um, things. And he was going to, I don't know, I don't know what happened if he ever did a publication or not, you know, cause the stuff that came out were like damage magazine and mm-hmm. uh vacation and another room, uh, um, creep after search and destroy research, um, um, yeah, yeah I, I, unfortunately, somebody scanned all the issues of damage, and I, that was a along with a slash was a very uh, valuable resor- uh, resource. Whereas with creep, uh, much harder to find. Although I, there was uh, one issue that I I was able to yeah. get my hands on, and, and it was amazing. I mean, it's got an interview with Flipper. It's got a uh, a whole story about New Youth. It's got a re- a live review of the Sleepers playing with Factrix and. Uh, you know, but so that was like 1980, and but it was like that window in between punk and yeah. really like hardcore, and uh, you know where there was it was kind yeah. of un, undefined, and and things were sorting themselves out, and uh, and you really it really in terms of San Francisco really sort of bifurcated between uh, or split between uh, the hardcore stuff uh, and and yeah. other, but and that kind of really took over. Um, but, uh, well, I quoted uh, Will because I uh, Flipper were interviewed on uh, Maximum Rock and Roll, and you know, and Tim Yohannan really sort of changed into a hardcore, uh, you know, a priest almost. And uh, then a band like Flipper or Angst would be challenged, you know, like um, you know, uh, what makes you hardcore or you know why why should people listen to slow music (laughs) or or uh you know jangly guitar or whatever you know your crime was he really uh i think he sold all of his 60s garage records you know he really turned the page on the past and became just into hardcore and and you know he's interviewing will and will said well we want to experiment with the music without being an art band. And that was his way of, you know, to your question about the art bands in San Francisco, who, you know, of them for a while, minimal man really had a band and he would play the elite club and he had a great drummer and, you know, they worked what they were doing worked in a, in a rock hall. Yeah. And um, I'm not sure Tuxedo Moon, they, they had a band originally. Very early. But yeah. I'm not sure they, the, yeah, they worked better in a different kind of a situation, right. ultimately. And they, and they left the country because, you know, Europe was better for them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a, you know, there's a, a point at which that's a different kind of thing, you know, that to my mind that belongs in movie soundtracks, you know, it's not so much a performance music. Right. And I think, you know, that even they, they would tend to admit that, you know, that the, the rock elements that were there in their music early on that I think both you and I find to be our, you know, the stuff that we would gravitate towards uh, is not what they were interested in. And, and uh, again, yeah, they were, yeah. 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 And so it, either there was a time, say, you know, late seventies where all of that stuff could sort of coexist and it wasn't, uh, uh, there wasn't the the sharp distinction, and then you get into you know the, you know sort of the eighty two and it, yeah. it, it didn't um, it, it didn't and, you know so then Flipper becomes this anomaly where where they are at once 
part of or at least associated with the hardcore scene without really playing that kind of music at all yeah i mean it's a it's surprising because of really probably their drug use that they really did become a touring band and um that was uh difficult to foresee you know uh steve tupper was you know really interested in flipper and so he was going to do whatever they wanted to do and um somehow it worked they were able to you know handle it on the road um for years and um i'm glad because you know you weren't sure other people were going to ever see this band that you, you know, you'd go and see at the small club. And, um, whereas with black flag, you knew they were going to be back, you know, and, uh, the next time they wouldn't be playing this garage or, you know, whatever dump they were playing, they were going to be playing, uh, eventually the, you know, the rock club that, um, you know, it's hard to you forget who was who was the bread and butter of these commercial venues at the time. You know, um, you know the, the the stuff on the four one five label or or um, right, yeah. I don't know. You know, some sort of half measure, yeah, sort of a punk punkish band or. You know, on the East Coast, there were a lot of these retro bands that were not really um, that good at pop music. I mean, the Smithereens were good at it. Um, DMZ were good at it. But, you know, there was a lot of bands like that that, you know, were 60s throwbacks, sort of. And um, it's it just... You know, I don't know who went to those gigs. Did they really <laughs> pay off? They didn't really get on the radio. I mean, but, you know, yeah, that's what I mean. You had all these guys sort of um, second guessing uh, or um, trying to uh, anticipate what was going to be popular. And they were wannabe managers, wannabe booking agents, uh, wannabe uh, program directors and that was the Howie Klein uh, situation in San Francisco with 415, where uh, yeah. there was just, it's yeah. like they were picking stuff that had something in common with this new music, but it was also to like, can this be polished or, or kind of sold and, you know, did, can will they behave yeah. and, and that sort of thing? Well, Howie would have Black Flag on his radio show. And, um, um, but yeah, there there was... I don't think there was ever any interest. It's like he didn't not ask them because they had their own label. Um, he wouldn't have thought that he wanted, he wouldn't have thought there was any upside, I think. But um, really the upside um, would have been along the lines of, um, of getting getting to Metallica's audience before Metallica made that audience it and that wasn't of any interest in the new wave uh, hip scene you know they they didn't want to they didn't really want those people <laughs> right. you know 
which the only the only guy who got him was Nirvana, and he didn't want him either. You know, so it's it's it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it, I guess it's class structure and uh, you know, yeah, I, 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 well, yeah, we didn't think that way because I mean, L.A. is a, just a different uh, sort of <clears throat> uncontrolled um, environment. You're just trying to get in front of people. And, um, but, you know, it did, it did happen even to those bands, basically the idea that, well, we don't want those people coming to the show or, you know, this, this or that, it, 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 it did the open, the open-ended style that I tried to do in the buying at systematic, you know, you you weren't perfect at it. You're, you're doing this on the fly. You don't, you know, you miss some records that you should have carried and and carry some you don't need to carry. And then at SST, uh, you know, the open the open ended thing, you know, you where you're selling to a dozen distributors, that's extinct. You know, everyone is an exclusive deal now with somebody and you just wonder that that can't that can't be better. I mean an exclusive distributor, they don't even have to break the seal on a record to listen to it once. <laughs> you know, they don't. They just are moving uh, shoes. Uh, you know, um, it, it's it's it's. Don't, I don't know how they buy, how they buy, or what they buy. Uh, it's not. It's just not an open system. So you know, they just. Um, it's sort of gravitated to where people are doing 200 copies of records uh, new releases right, yeah now, i was listening to something the other day where uh, i was i think it was on that rock crit podcast a different episode where somebody was talking about the the role of you know the rock critic being something that has uh, almost uh, gone obsolete relative to what it was but what this uh conversation is sort of emphasizing to me is that there was this other role of, of the like in terms of a distributor or buyer that was also like you know, curating things in a sense. And uh, uh, it never really occurred to me that people deciding what records to, to stock. Yes, they're actually, they're not necessarily writing reviews, but their decisions yeah. are important. And that played a role. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we just, for those years, uh, carrying the rough trade stuff and, and putting the American stuff, pulling it all together. Like we didn't, uh, we eventually were carrying some uh, of the New York stuff, um, but we missed, you know, the television 45. We didn't distribute that. We didn't distribute the Perubu singles. Um, we missed, you know, 76, 77, then we got going in 78. Um, but um, it, you know, you, you, you don't know what record stores around the country until you put them together. And that takes a year takes two years and it's still going on, you know, when we're in Berkeley. <laughs> so, you know, we're adding new shops, trying to convince them they need to have a corner of the store for this stuff, you know, that's coming. And, you know, it might've been minor threat. It might've been the misfits. It might've been the cramps 45s. Um, you know, there were a lot of things coming out and you could kind of catch hold of a shop because of something, you know, the feelies uh, bringing in their record from uh, Rough Trade. 
um, you just didn't know what it, what it was that would get them to do that. You know, Slash, we distributed the magazine, but it was hard to sell magazines for us. We were shipping records out to shops, uh, COD. They weren't likely to want to pay COD for a magazine, but you know, eventually they figured out that Slash was, you know, really a unique magazine. They did a, a you know, kind of a, a, a sample issue called from other things, and then they gave us hundreds of them for free to just throw into boxes, and that was the kind of idea generation you you had to do, you know. Um, to to try to work your way around this blockade, which was unthinking, really, it wasn't a conspiracy. They didn't have to, you know, do they didn't have to do anything to ignore you. <laughs> you you barely had a voice. San Francisco bands have written about it in particular were were difficult. We couldn't buy any records from when we were in Portland. The San Francisco bands just did not have business on their mind, even if they managed to get a record out. They they weren't answering their mail. Right. If you got you know if you got their address, you couldn't um, count on getting a response. The Dead Kennedys were the first band that really seemed like they, you know, were going to do this seriously. And, um, and, um, well, we should have been more active in, in planning out with them their next record and how, how we were going to do something worth touring behind, you know, how to market a 12 inch record. We didn't do that. And we did their reissue of the first single. We put out holiday in Cambodia for 3,000 copies, and then they sold it to uh, IRS records because, uh, you know, they just didn't think we were doing a good job or it didn't have the visibility or whatever. I don't even know because we sold 3,000 records. That was pretty good, and we had another 2,000 ready to go. We had the covers done, Um, but, you know, we just didn't know. We didn't know what to do in those years. We didn't know if they were going to be able to tour everywhere they wanted to tour and um you didn't know how to do it you know i mean i thought with the dead kennedys you know you could sell them on television late at night you know by you know by those kind of um, by a kind of a joke ad <laughs> um but i you know i don't know if they would run the ad right you know, with the band name <laughs> Probably not. Right. And, and, yeah. But anyway, you know, you had to find your way around the radio people. Yeah. And well, and they would have been, if I, uh, you know, from my vantage point, not having been there at the time, but what I've talked to people and read, they were the only one that I would, that I could compare. They were the only one of the San Francisco bands that I could compare to anything like a black flag as far as uh, the work ethic or discipline. I mean, you could say a lot of things about Flipper or the, uh, you know, these other bands, but work ethic isn't, isn't, uh, the first thing that comes to mind. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're a little surprised because why would you bother being in a band if you don't want to tour? Um, but you know, people did think you were going to get signed 
and then put on the road and put in hotels, you know, put in a bus and put in hotels. And, uh, um, that, that, I don't know who that happened for, but it barely happened for the Ramones. So, you know, you had to be on a major label to get even that, uh, that low rung, uh, going, and, you know, someone like Blue Oyster Cult, they had, you know, every every four years they had a radio hit. And they could just barely, you know, survive on that. So, yeah, what, what chances did uh, Flipper have, really? I mean, they got probably the, the most they could get. Whereas I think Black Flag uh, had a, had a, a better upside, but by the time the five piece band was, um, was, um, by the time Des quit, um, and he offered to stay to finish the recording, but Greg said, no, just, we'll just do, you know, the four piece. And, um, then my war became without Chuck even, um, that was a that you know put a big dent in in their their uh, the ability to to put that record across because those songs were killer for them even if they weren't playing them in their live set they were playing them in sound checks and practicing and um, <clears throat> the five piece was you know was the band to to make it happen across the country, but it just, it didn't happen because of unicorn because of, uh, of the, you know, each additional player makes it complicated on tour in the bus and, you know, in the restaurant in a pit stop, et cetera, just all gets, it all gets uh, tougher and tougher. And, you know, we, we weren't even really selling merchandise. So, you know, later on there's t-shirts and there's two crew or three crew, or then there's a PA. (laughs) They took on everything and, um, you know, probably uh, the time had passed where they were going to make a breakthrough that, that was going to happen in 82 and it didn't happen. So it was by 83 that Metallica had that audience and they weren't going to, they weren't going to move to punk rock until Nirvana eventually. Right. Right. They just weren't going to accept it. Right. Yeah. And then, and then otherwise it was the, the path to, to sort of college rock or, or uh, on the other side of things. Um, yeah. yeah. And when you, when you listen to stuff like, late Husker Du on Warner Brothers or Firehose or late Meat Puppets. It's really disappointing. You know, it's that those are bands trying to find their way to survive economically and uh, get onto a major label because, you know, the independent situations were drying up and failing. And, um, it's sad, you know, because that's not what the music was supposed to be delivering, you know. Right, right. Uh, um, yeah, but, I, you know, I think there will continue to be, you know, an interest in this era, partly because of, uh, 
I don't know. I get, I, I always hesitate because maybe maybe I could be completely clueless to to great things happening. But it, it just uh, it seems like as time goes on that this tradition yeah. of of people playing yeah. together in a room, playing playing music uh, that that kind of way is is a. Uh, I grew up with it as being part of part of uh, part of life, and now it's like, oh, this was something that that kind of happened. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's kind of cultural. I I thought even when the band era was still going. Any band that started after 1981, you know, assuming the kids are 20, then uh, they would have been 10 in 71, and FM radio goes bad in 74. So, you know, they're 13, 13 years old. If you don't get into music before you're 13, you do, you never hear great music on the radio. And um, so, you know, what it, what are you programmed? What is your what is the music culture you uh, matured into? It's just not rich. I mean, in my case, we sat through you know, the Count Basie orchestra to see Rolling Stones on television. And, you know, you heard all kinds of uh, Stax singles on uh, Top 40. Um, whether you wanted to or not, uh, you got programmed by good stuff. That even was, even the stuff that was beyond your ability to, you know, comprehend really and appreciate um, made you a better listener 10, 20 years later. And that's what's missing. It's almost like you know, um, it's like a um, like a lobotomy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> by omission. You know, it's just it's just not good music. Is just not in you um, the way it it uh, you walk through the culture, and uh, you didn't even search it out. You know, like I said, everyone went to record stores. And uh, you're in there and you're looking at uh, some grubby garage band, Grease Balls, uh, but you're hearing, uh, you know, the latest Sinatra over the record, uh, the record store PA or whatever, you know, the, the stuff that went into the, the pop culture overall. And um, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that can't be duplicated by just um, collecting records or collecting uh, iTunes or, you know, picking out stuff to explore. That's, that's, um, you know, that's all you can do, but it's, it's inferior to what went on in the, in the um, really it's, you know, it's from the twenties into the, early seventies. And, um, you know, it, it goes good and bad over time, but, um, radio used to be a local business and, um, and, um, you know, these via moths own all the channels now. And, <clears throat> you know, it's kind of funny to see, um, <laughs> to see Taylor Swift, you know, in a way, channeling uh, Pearl Jam circa 93 or whenever they tried to work without Ticketmaster. 
Oh, yeah. It's just, you know, it's just so much further along that um, her complaint is not the same one. Her complaint, I guess, is that they sold them, you know, the scalpers instead of fans. But um, who knows? I mean, it's like you say, it's a foreign language now. Who's paying all this money to see pop music? You know, $100, $200, $300. Uh, people go to these, you know, Bonnaroo and those kind of things now, and it becomes a, almost a vacation of music. Um, yeah, it's not, it's, you know, it's not, um, it, it didn't, it doesn't interest me, but there's no, there's no doubt that, you know, more music will appeal to you in a live environment, but, um, I'm not sure the, um, the big uh, concert productions are live environments exactly anymore. Yeah, too much yeah. digital, digital control of uh, the drums, of the PA, the um, programming, etc. Yeah, yeah, and then you know, in terms of uh, recorded music, it, it's uh, it's bittersweet. You have access to all this stuff that you know you can find it immediately. And to somebody yeah, who yeah. somebody could would would ask, you know, how could you possibly be nostalgic for an era where you had to uh, order special order something or go across town to the record store and uh, hope they had a copy? <laughs> it's uh, well, I know, yeah, yeah. That's, you know, and and you know, you're writing a book today. Uh, I was, you know, when I was writing the Naomi book, um, we wrote letters to each other. So right, yeah. um, she, she wrote letters all over the country, you know, and um, networked, you know, that way. And, um, and uh, in, a, in a way, I don't, I couldn't write the book without that kind of, you know, um, that kind of uh, uh, asset. Um, my own letters and her letters and uh, various other people's letters and, uh, you know, it, it, and that's all gone now. It's like email and then you, what, you get rid of your phone and do you, do you have all that stuff? Can you search it all and put it, put anything together that's equivalent to what the letters give you? I, you know, I have my doubts. But yeah, it's it's nice that people are finding the stuff. You know, if young people are finding um, and relating, I mean, it's you know, it's you know, you you write about someone like Naomi Peterson, or you know, you write a read about um, Ricky Williams or Will Shatter. I mean, you know, they're cautionary in part, but they're also inspiring. So. You know, you 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 don't want to encourage the wrong thing, but you do want to, you know, let people know that, um, you know, it might take a little more involvement to really produce something memorable, you know, <laughs> and uh, and, um, you know, the kind of the dilettante approach where 
you dabble in two or three different bands and, you know, formats for your art, well, you may never produce anything that way. Yeah, yeah, there's no there's no shortage of those, um, I don't even want to call them characters, but people who, who read like um, characters, uh, tra tragic heroes, uh, I guess. You know, you don't want to say live like this person, yeah. but uh, at the same time you... Uh, and, and there is a tragic arc to to the way their their uh, lives would end, but at the same time, almost uh, maybe it could be misguided, but a sense of envy that they lived as as fully as they did, or or uh, you can at least say that they weren't dabbling; they were really they were really going for it in some maybe. maybe yeah. yeah, yeah, they produced something and and uh, body of work, and uh, and um, and it's not like anybody else's. Um, I was, you know, I had all these tapes of live shows and then, uh, <clears throat> the twelling midgets were being, uh, um, put together for, um, uh, co compiled of missing tracks and stuff in there. So there were these new, uh, Ricky Williams, um, vocals to put together on that WFMU show that I did. And, uh, you know, that got, um, you know, for, at that point in New York and that area, um, and John Allen's show, you know, um, it re it really got response. It got noticed uh, in San Francisco and in New York, and whoever listens to his show online. Um, and um, I was glad for that because you know you tend to think, well, who remembers Ricky at this point? Um, uh, he's, I think he and, uh, Will were, um, well, Will was in the one Rolling Stone article about, you know, the new underground where they, <laughs> they, um, they did an article uh, about yeah. Black Flag and Flipper and, uh, the Minutemen and Husker Du and, I don't know, maybe a replacements or somebody. And, uh, but they, yeah. um, yeah, 85, 85. I yeah. Think, so, yeah. So already, yeah. At that point they, they did that article, but I don't think Ricky had ever been in Rolling Stone until his obituary, you know, and that, that to me is just, uh, you know, a signal, uh, a, a, a sign of the rot in the culture is you're, uh, you don't appear in Rolling Stone until you're dead. Uh, when you've done what Ricky Williams did when you were that good. And, uh, you know, there's, he, he, he wasn't a workaholic. <laughs> so maybe he could have worked his way into right, better right. press, but you know, the fact that Rolling Stone came out of San Francisco and they didn't, pay the slightest attention to what happened after they left town. And it just tells you Jan Wenner wanted to be media. He didn't want to be music. Thank you again to Joe Carducci for appearing on this episode, and thank you for listening. For more on Joe Carducci's books, go to nightheron.square.site, and for more on Who Cares Anyway, go to headpress.com. It was cold, I could see my breath. The light was blue and bare. And dancing up on the hooks, everyone was hanging there. They moved so slow, so slow they
got no reason to hurry They're not going anywhere I just got back from the meat house I took a look into the meat house They got our lovers hanging there 